This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here today joined by a special guest. I am joined by uh, Dr. Caleb Lack. Um, Caleb, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me on, Chris. No problem. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. So... Today, we are going to continue our series on first the history of kind of Christian mysticism all the way up to the modern day of exorcism and uh, more wide ranging and I think a little bit more intense and in some ways to me a little bit more scary conspiracy theory and thought on the Internet about the current reach of uh, satanic cults. So in our uh, In an upcoming episode here, we're actually going to hear from the Church of Satan, uh, a group that's, uh, you know, in no way really associated with this stuff in any actual way, but is often used as a kind of uh, scapegoat, I suppose. And in this episode, I wanted to give uh, I wanted to talk to a to a someone who's trained, at least to kind of give some of these opinions and ideas here. So uh, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of background on yourself, please? Sure. So I'm a uh, professor of psychology and a clinical psychologist at the University of Central Oklahoma. Um, My background is in working mostly in terms of clinical stuff with folks who have really super severe anxiety problems, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, social anxiety, Tourette's disorder, things like that. so that's kind of my clinical background. So as part of that, you have to be very familiar with kind of a lot of the things uh, I think we'll be talking about today in terms of mental health. And then I also uh, have a secondary kind of specialization in critical thinking. So for the last oh, 13, 14 years at this point, uh, I've taught courses in critical thinking and science and pseudoscience. And I uh, have my most recent book uh, was a, is a best-selling textbook on critical thinking. Uh, so I'm kind of well-versed in a lot of these issues because they come up, unfortunately, all too often. Yeah, so it's it's very interesting. You know, as a show, that was kind of our, I guess, the beginning of the show's history. That was sort of our focus was trying to combat pseudoscience, trying to promote critical thinking by really picking apart these claims, these ideas that are out there and looking at them in a more serious way. And uh, with that, though, it's it's almost inevitable. You kind of get sucked into some of these people's worlds, right? You, you start to discuss with them, you know, uh, oh, I, th- I thought, I, you know, I think I was abducted by aliens or... I think I saw a ghost for real, right? It's, you know, it, it, uh, the human aspect of it becomes very, very interesting. And, and I think really that's the thing that makes people believe these stories is they can't, they can't fathom a case where they themselves would, you know, misremember or, uh, confabulate or, you know, what have you, these things, but 
one thing I always tell, I always try to tell people, and I say it on the show a lot, is, you know, the human, like, one thing that we never really discuss with each other is the actual mechanism of our thinking. Right? So, so why don't you give us kind of, uh, I guess, from your perspective, you know, as a, as a trained uh, clinical psychologist, how would you explain, I guess, some of these cases, say, of, um, I don't know, high, you know, paranormal events or high strangeness? Yeah. So, you know, when I when I teach critical thinking, it's just it, it's fairly similar into uh, how I treat somebody who has some sort of mental health problem, which is that you can't start by just saying, "So here's where you're wrong." Mm-hmm. Or, no, that's not right. Because it turns out that doesn't work. Um, and, and people will just be like, okay, whatever, screw you. Uh, and then they'll stop listening, right? So what you actually have to do first, and what we do in the critical thinking classes, is we teach you why, basically, you can't trust your own brain all the time. Uh, that's actually the subtitle of my last book. Because we all naturally have these often very, very useful biases and heuristics that we employ on a day-to-day basis whenever we encounter information in the the world around us. Mm. And we also have all these, um, I would say, kind of perceptual glitches that are a a product of our evolutionary history that don't work so well in certain modern situations. Uh, And so the very first thing that I, you know, really focus on in my critical thinking classes is okay, how do we know what it is that we actually know and what it is that we don't know but we pretend to know uh, or, you know, believe that I actually know? And I think you have to lay that sort of groundwork in terms of why do I believe what it is that I do believe? Because if I don't and I just start, you know, popping right into debunking, Uh, What we know from research is that people will not just ignore you, but they'll become more entrenched in their beliefs uh, if you just say you're wrong, Uh, even if you provide, you know, wonderful factual evidence for that. Mm -hmm. And so you really have to teach people how to question themselves uh, and how to be okay with questioning themselves, which is is very tricky a lot of times. Um, And you have to go about it in a fairly, fairly slow process. And it's, you know, it's very similar to what we do in, in psychotherapy, effective cognitive behavioral therapies, uh, which is you have to educate somebody first about what it is they're experiencing. And then you have to work with them to help them uh, test their own beliefs out. And you can't just say, don't be depressed. Don't be anxious. Right. right. That, that doesn't work. It's well, it's, it's really it's it's always been interesting to me because it it almost seems like, you know, we we go back to kind of a Socratic approach, right? Where you're, uh, you're kind of, you're questioning, right? Your, your perceptions, you're questioning your mind and you're trying to think, cause you know, when, when people tell me we, I, I do a, a monthly radio show on spaced out radio, uh, where it's kind of myself and then, a, a another sort of, uh, skeptic, I get, you know, he doesn't really like to call himself a skeptic, but someone who's very, um, critical of these kind of things. Right. And, uh, and then it's the two of us discussing with someone who has had his own experiences and really feels like some of this stuff is really real. And 
the, the thing that I keep coming back to is, well, your mind, your mind tricks you all the time, right? Like you, you misremember things constantly. I mean, you know, I, I, I do it too, right? We all do it and we all have different, we just don't talk about it, right? I mean, I remember one of the, one of the scariest kind of memories I have as a kid is lying at night in a, in a, in, I hated really dark rooms. I hated completely dark rooms. And the reason I hated them was because I would lay there and I would kind of see uh, basically like visual hallucinations almost of colors, right? Like pops of colors and whatever. And when I finally, uh, when I finally, you know, worked up the courage to go see a psychologist about it as an adult, you know, the psychologist basically told me, and this was someone that I was seeing for, for other things, for my own anxiety disorders, uh, basically was like, oh, yeah, you know, we hear that in kids sometimes. It's, it's just kind of a it's called like a what was it called? Like chromo chromo something, whatever. But it's like a rel- it's a relatively common occurrence. And uh, because I had not. But it, it scared me. It scared me terribly as a kid. Right. And it's kind yeah. of that thing where we we don't talk to each other about these uh, the mechanism of thinking or the way that you cognate a, an event or even anything else. And so, you know, you just assume that other people think the way you do or that other people have the same uh, mental mechanisms or whatever as you do. And that's not always the case. Yeah. It's, you know, one of the, the things that I do a lot of when I teach critical thinking is I share, you know, sort of my own, biases or the, excuse me, sorry, uh, I share the way that, you know, my brain has fooled me before. Mm-hmm. Um, just this week, actually, we were, uh, we were focusing on aliens and alien abduction. And I got to tell my class about how for about the last 35 years, so about as far back as I can remember, uh, I've actually experienced sleep paralysis and, uh, hypnagogic hallucinations mm-hmm. and those for you know in case your listeners don't know so sleep paralysis is you know where you you feel like you wake up in the middle of the night um, you can open your eyes and move your eyes around generally but the rest of your body is still paralyzed and typically your autonomic nervous system is highly activated so my my heart's about to beat out of my chest i'm sweating i'm breathing heavy and you feel like you can't move. Uh, and sleep paralysis is pretty common. Most people experience it maybe once or twice in their life. Uh, and, it's, and it's terrifying if you don't know what it is. It's also terrifying even if you do know what it is because your body is freaking out. Uh, right. You know, and you're, you know, your brain is like, hey, it's okay. And your body's like, it's obviously not okay or I wouldn't be doing this right now. Uh, and so then I, I have again, had that for, you know, over three decades, and then mine is often combined with uh, hypnagogic hallucinations, which are the hallucinations you have when you're, you know, going from a sleep to a wake state. And so I tell my students about how I, for example, very frequently wake up, again, in this sort of panicked, terrified, paralyzed state, and see large, dark, shadowy figures moving around my bedroom. Uh, or occasionally I'll have tactile hallucinations where I will feel things happening like uh, a large snake like moving across my body uh, and they'll you know they they sort of look at me like oh my gosh I'm taking a class from this guy like what's going on but then I can you know I can then weave that into uh, 
you know, here's how these experiences impact, you know, how you experience the world and sort of how you interpret the world, particularly in terms of people who think they've been abducted by aliens, right? Because almost everybody who claims to have been abducted by aliens has those kinds of experiences, those paralysis and um, hallucinatory experiences. And how I, you know, and I, I consider myself a fairly well-read person, but I had no idea what was going on until I got to college and happened to, uh, just briefly, we started talking about it in the first intro psych class I ever had, the very first introduction to psychology I'd had. And my professor, uh, Bill Scott, just sort of mentioned it as an aside, and I was like, whoa, 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 hold on. <laughs> right, go back to that part, please. Let's step back a minute. Are you saying that this is a thing? Right, you know, right. I hadn't told anyone about it. Uh, yeah. I was like, I am crazy. Like, I'm waking up and seeing things in my room, and we'll, we'll just keep that to ourselves. Uh, and I think we have a lot of things like that, right? Uh, yeah, um, absolutely. So yours is a good example of that, or you know, somebody who you know sees or hears something that they're sort of not able to explain readily and they're instead of seeking out like okay what is this it's more of a well i'm gonna just keep that to myself or i interpret that based on what i already believe you know whether that's ghosts or aliens or witches or whatever it happens to be right you know it's it's it is really i think i mean it's it's instructive for um I mean, I love I love that you use that in class. I wish I could take that class with you. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Uh, you know, so how how common would you say? You know, just kind of you know, you probably don't have the. I'm sure you don't have the stats in front of you, but how common would you say? Kind of, I guess, a. Uh, I, I don't I don't even know if hallucination is the right word, but how common is like a thinking error? I suppose where um, something like that could happen? Like, you know, would you say everyone experiences them a couple times in their lives? Would you say it's only some people like, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. if, if you, if you feel comfortable quantifying that. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of our thinking errors or our cognitive biases, I mean, all of us have those literally everyone. Uh, and we interpret our world based on those. Um, so if I, you know, for instance, if I think that ghosts are, are a real phenomena and I happen to catch something out of the corner of my eye, you know, while I'm on a, a ghost hunt, I'm automatically saying, oh, yep, that was a ghost, you know, as opposed to I don't think it's a ghost. So I catch the same thing out of the corner of my eye and I think, oh, that was just a trick of the light or, oh, that was just, you know, a cloud or whatever it happened to be. So all of this, all of this time have our cognitive biases at play. Um, and that the big one of those is what we call the confirmation bias, which I'm you know, sure you guys are familiar with. But oh, yeah. yeah, that's where you interpret the information around you. Um, if it confirms what you believe, then you just sort of accept it and say, hey, come on in. Right? Like, that's great. I'm gonna just going to take that. And then if it goes against what you believe, you naturally just discount it and, you know, find flaws with it and ignore it and forget about it very quickly. So all of us have those. Um, as far as these more like uh, odd sensory experiences, they're actually extremely common. Mm. Um, so some of our larger scale, we don't ask about it in a direct way because if we say, you know, 
hey, have you had a hallucination? People tend to be like, mm, no, no, right. I'm not crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. But if we ask about it in more subtle ways, like have you ever heard someone call your name and then you've looked around and no one's there or have you ever, you know, seen something and then you looked at it more closely and it wasn't there. When we ask about these things in more subtle ways, we find, you know, a very significant percentage of the population, maybe 25 to 35 percent, uh, have experienced, you know, various kinds of sensory hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is not a weird thing. It doesn't mean that you're schizophrenic or something like that. Uh, it's just, you know, it's a thing that a lot of people experience, but they don't think about it, right? Or they don't know that it's so common. How would you, so how would you quantify what that actually so because I'm thinking myself right I always I always joke with friends that if you have a cat you have probably at least once a week looked at a pile of clothes on the floor or a wrapper or a leaf or something whatever in the corner of your eye and thought oh it's my cat and then you look around and it's something else (laughs) right like cats I think are lousy for mini hallucinations you know they're these these little balls of uh, of of trickery right is would is that something that you would quantify as a uh, as one of those events or is it something more um does it have to be something more significant yeah so so that is more just a misidentification right so okay. uh, and we see that all the time in sure. huge numbers in different ways um but that's more just like there's an actual thing in my environment and I misidentified it, right? Um, or I placed my belief system onto that. Um, so I'm, you know, if you've got a cat, for example, you're very primed to see cat-like shapes because you're seeing a cat all the time. Right, and the cat owns your brain, so it's... <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and so you're very primed to see that. So you see something vaguely cat-like in your brain automatically latches onto, oh, that's the cat. And then you're like, oh, wait, no, that's just a shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's different from actually having like a, a hallucinatory experience where there's not any external stimuli, and yet I interpret it that way. Okay. Okay. So the difference there is, okay, I, I get that distinction now then. So it's it's literally that there's, so this would be something like, you know, the corner of your eye, you think you see a person passing and then you look behind and there isn't a person or like you said, you hear your name called and then, uh, but there, but you're the only one in the house or something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And what's, um, you know, what's really amazing about those kinds of experiences is again, there's no external stimuli, but when we look at how the brain is activated and processing information when you're having hallucinations, there's no difference between um, me actually hearing a sound, you know, an external, you know, real sound, and me having an auditory hallucination. The exact same parts of the brain are are involved in processing that. Um, same parts of your brain are highly active and activated to your brain. It is real. And I think that's a really important thing for people to understand. Um, you know, it's not that I'm just making this up. It's that as far as my brain's concerned, that is there. Like, so that is a real phenomenon. You know, it's it's so funny. I don't know if you've ever listened to the uh, – I don't know if you've ever listened to the Ricky Gervais podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay, so I love the part where, uh, you know, Carl always gets into it where he's like, you know, well, my brain thinks this, but I think this. 
And they're, you know, and, and, and Ricky and Steve are like, you're not separate operatives. Like you're, you are your brain. Right. But I know, I know at least for me, when I, um, when I started my own, you know, kind of mental health journey, I guess, you know, so, uh, so just full disclosure to you and the listeners know this already, but you know, um, I have been, uh, I've been diagnosed with OCD and, uh, other kind of anxiety ish things. Right. But, um, and, and, and personally for me and my, on my own kind of, you know, whatever life lifetime so far, um, a lot of the things that I thought at one time were paranormal esque, right. Or kind of, you know, Oh, this is weird. I wonder what this is. You know, now I look back at them and I'm like, your brain was tricking you, idiot. You know, like it's, you know, with, with hindsight, you can kind of see them that way. Um, but it's, but it is so fascinating though, because you know, it's sort of, it is sort of that dichotomy or that hardness of, well, you're, to your brain it's real but it's not really real and now a part of your brain seems to know that it's not real but the other part was like no it's you know like you just get into that you know uh that car you know and then you end up looking and feeling like carl pilkington right you're just sitting there with your thumb in your mouth like oh my goodness i don't know what's happening um it's so it's it's fascinating all too common uh i mean you know for me personally when i have you know my hallucinations you know i can have a little small part of my brain that's going like, hey, it's cool. We know this isn't real. Let's all just calm down. And the other part of my brain is, you know, going, oh, my God, there's a bear in the house. You know, <laughs> and just, you know, flipping out. And it's just like, well, it's hard to it's hard to argue with yourself when you're, you know, as far as your brain's concerned, there is a bear walking down the hall, you know. And right. Right. You know, I don't have a bear, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's obviously a, a wild bear. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it is tough, though. Um, and that's, you know, I think one of the most difficult parts about becoming a good critical thinker is that willingness to accept that I, I'm wrong sometimes and I can be wrong. And you have to kind of doubt yourself a lot more than the average person does uh, and it's, it's not a natural thing for us to do uh, but it's needed for you know being a critical thinker right absolutely so so the the original reason that i reached out to you was because we're doing a series now on sort of the history of you know so one of my favorite it's it, it is my favorite um kind of spooky topic i guess you'd say right so the show we kind of try to do equal bits of science and spookiness and you know uh, teach critical thinking and teach science by talking about this it's kind of sci-fi horror stuff that people like uh and, you know and frankly me and marie love as well but so one of uh, i know the, i think the reason that it's so fascinating to me this topic is because it scared me so much as a kid is this idea of um, demonology and Christian mysticism, angelology, right? These kind of very complicated, um, you know, systems of, you know, it's almost like a, uh, like a Tolkien-esque cast of characters and mythos and rules and whatever. And, uh, you know, one fascinating aspect of that is, is exorcism, of course, and, but also, I think in the modern day, and this is the topic that we're going to get to at the kind of end of the series, is this idea of people today uh, truly believing that they have been in some ways affected or hurt or abducted or whatever by, uh, for lack of a better term, you know, satanic cults. 
right? Or the Illuminati or these other groups. Um, you know, we, I mean, I, I've just been devouring books on this topic for, you know, I mean, for years, but um, even to the point where you see these people who are writing, and I mean, who knows if they're telling the truth or not, but they, they claim, you know, I have cut off all contact with my family. I have, con you know, I have uh, completely moved away. My, my, my wife and children and whatever are still part of the cult and I, you know, whatever. Um, and one thing that comes up often is this idea of dissociative identity disorder. They claim that, that this is the, I guess the MK ultra esque way that these cult groups or whatever have been able to break them down. So first off, I guess, I mean, this is like a super loaded question, I suppose now that I've given all this background stuff for you to talk about, but you know, first off, I guess, what is your take on those kind of stories or what do you think? I mean, how do you even, how would you, as I guess a, a psychologist or someone with your background, how would you view those stories? That's kind of question one. So, yeah, good question. And it really depends on what your training in mental health is, right? So, so my background in training in mental health is very much from a um, scientific point of view. So in my training in graduate school, there was a huge emphasis on research uh, and on using what we call EBPs or evidence-based practices. Uh, and those are, you know, what is it that we know works for a particular problem? And we know it works not because, oh, hey, I think it works, but because we have good, you know, controlled clinical data to show that it does work for particular problems. Mm -hmm. um, so my background is, and, and many, not all, but many clinical psych programs have that kind of an emphasis. But that's not the emphasis that a lot of mental health practitioners get in their training. Um, a lot of practitioners really don't have that sort of emphasis on what I would call more scientific aspects of mental health or treatment uh, and instead rely more on, well, this is how I feel, right? Or this is how I think. This mm. is my pet theory as opposed to, well, here's what we actually have research to back up. So I can tell you how I answer that, but I can also tell you how other people would answer it, right? So, uh, so for me, when I hear allegations about things like uh, ritualistic abuse and satanic abuse, um, I, I immediately have kind of you know two responses. One, which is we know that unfortunately uh, abuse of children is all too common. Mm -hmm. And it happens, you know, way more than it should, which it should happen zero. So any more than that, it's too much. But it does happen. It happens a lot. And it's primarily done by family members. Um, that's the, the most dangerous group for a child to be around as a family member because they're, the they're the ones who are most likely to abuse them. Um, so I automatically say, okay, well, you know, is there a chance that this person was abused, you know, uh, as a child, which for a lot of people coming into mental health services, they certainly could be. Mm -hmm. And then second, you know, what, what is the kind of uh, extent of their reports and their memories and their, you know, details for these kinds of things? Mm -hmm. 
So when somebody starts talking about, you know, these kind of um, sadistic or ritualistic kinds of abuse situations, you always have to try and think about like, okay, well, what information have they been exposed to? What other potential therapists have they seen? Where does that come from? Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, as you guys, you know, I'm sure you're well aware, uh, we had this whole sort of moral panic starting in the 1980s about satanic ritual abuse, right? Uh, where you've got Geraldo doing specials on it and, you know, Oprah Winfrey doing specials on it and the entire country is just, you know, consumed with the fact that all these Satanists are murdering babies and controlling Procter and Gamble and, you know, doing all of these crazy, crazy things. Mm. Uh, so does that person have that kind of a background? Uh, because I, you know, sadly, I have seen cases of abuse that, you know, they're not from a satanic point of view, but they're certainly sadistic and fairly ritualistic. And, sure. you know, they have a lot of those qualities, mm. but are they happening as a result of some sort of uh, satanic cult? Mm. And the answer to that question is uh, no. Right. <laughs> I mean, they're not. Um, all of the investigations that have occurred, um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about like me. I'm talking about things like, you know, the FBI. There's never found any evidence of, you know, these sort of widespread satanic cults because they don't exist. Uh, and so, if someone does have those memories, though, or it has that belief, you know, what I do is I try and I try and understand, you know, what's going to be the thing that's going to help them increase their quality of life the most Mm -hmm. Uh, because it turns out that it doesn't matter if something's a false memory or not, you know, whether or not something really truly occurred, Mm -hmm. it's how am I responding to that memory? That's important. Mm. Um, And I'll I'll give you an example. So in the uh, early two thousands, there was uh, a very well-known trauma researcher who was out of Harvard uh, who got, interested in alien abductions, um, in particular the people who claimed they'd been abducted. His name's Richard McNally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and McNally started researching these people who thought they were abducted by aliens. And as one of his studies, he brought in um, combat veterans from Vietnam, and he compared their physiological responses when they were recounting the stories of the trauma they experienced in Vietnam to the physiological responses of these people who claimed to be abducted by aliens when they were recounting their abduction experience. Now, we know those abduction experiences aren't real. We know those are false memories. We know the Vietnam experiences were real, like he had you know, treatment records and service records for these folks. Mm-hmm. And what he was found was that there was no difference in terms of the physiological reactivity between the abductees and the combat veterans. Wow. So in other words, it doesn't matter that these people had false memories. They were still having obviously very, very highly significant negative responses to those false memories. And so that's something I always keep in mind, which is that it doesn't matter if something's objectively true. It's how I think about it that interprets or changes how it is that I respond to it, right? 
So if I have somebody who, you know, really is convinced that they've had these kinds of experiences, I can still treat their post-traumatic stress symptomology, their anxiety, their depression, um, even if what's, you know, maybe at least partially causing that isn't quote-unquote real. So that, but that brings in, so from, that brings an interesting question though, because, so I would, I would anticipate that if you believed that something traumatic happened to you, right? I guess I could see the argument or I guess I could see the, I mean, it's not even an argument, right? I mean, I guess I could see the fact that whether or not the trauma actually occurred doesn't matter if it's been, if it's been traumatizing you enough that you seek out psychological help, right? Then clearly uh, it doesn't really matter if the trauma really occurred or not because to your brain, it did occur. But I guess I, you know, for me though, so I guess I have two questions. The first one would be, doesn't the fact that the trauma didn't occur mean something or doesn't it help to kind of elite, you know, if I thought that I was, being chased by, I mean, let's use your own, I'm being chased by a bear. If I thought I was being chased by a bear and I was, uh, you know, running down the hallway terrified and then I, you know, look back and I realize that it's not actually a bear. It's a, you know, it's a puppy, right? That, that would alleviate my, that would alleviate my fear. That would alleviate my trauma in the moment. But I guess, I guess what you're saying is that because it's already become ingrained in the mind in some way, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily matter if it was true or not. Yeah. Well, so I mean, as part of this work, what you would do is you would certainly do education on, you know, the non veracity of things like satanic abuse. Right. Okay. Um, but just telling somebody that something that they remember vividly didn't happen, isn't going to actually right. make them be like, Oh, well, never mind then. Right, yeah. like you said it'll entrench it'll entrench them more. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So okay. what, what you have to do is you treat it the same as you would um, any other traumatic memory, and mm-hmm. th- and this is you know, this is not unique to something like you know believing that you were ritually abused. Um, our research has shown that it's much more important how you how dangerous you think a situation is in terms mm-hmm. of a traumatic event. Mm-hmm. not the actual danger of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of our research, for example, looked at uh, the actual level of damage to a child's home during a tornado compared to their perception of the level of damage and how much of a danger they were actually in. Sure. And the objective amounts of damage and the objective sort of danger um, are not related to a person's long-term trauma response. Instead, it's their interpretation of that situation as it occurs. Sure. So even later going back and being like, oh, well, you know what? It blew two shingles off the house. You know, I shouldn't be worried about that. Well, no, because you thought you were going to die during it. So therefore, that's really what causes the problem. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so it's all about, you know, kind of... um, reducing that reactivity to the memories uh, and then allowing that to sort of help you reinterpret what was going on. Okay. That makes perfect sense. So it's kind of, you first, you first lower that flight or fight response uh, and then you kind of 
can help to ease and, and discuss further those experiences and come to some conclusion about the truth or falsehood of them. Yeah, and we, and we, you know, with that, we most commonly use an exposure-based protocol where it's uh, exposure and response prevention. Sure, 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 uh, yeah. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Which you, you, you might be familiar with. I am absolutely uh, familiar with. I'll <laughs> yeah. never forget. I, I actually, when I was first, when I was first, I, I tell this story sometimes to friends. Never shared it on the show before. I don't think. Maybe I did. But when, um, when I was first seeking treatment, the thing that really... You know, I kind of had already been sort of diagnosed. I knew I, I knew I might have PTSD or some kind of anxiety disorder from, you know, from childhood, whatever. And I remember I went in for a test where they were like, well, this is for this was before I was even admitted to the uh, overall kind of psych program at Mass General Hospital, where they were like, oh, you know, we're just we're doing tests of people that have these kind of things, whatever. We'll, you know, pay you 20 bucks, right? Come in, do the study for us, right? And I was All a poor, right. I was a poor graduate student. So 20 bucks was like, you know, that's like two pizzas and a beer. This is great, right? And so uh I went in and did it and I'll I'll never forget. I left, I left that that test and I was like, well, I definitely need to go seek treatment because this is out of hand. The test was, you know, those um, you know, those black and white uh, sort of like, oh, what's the word? Almost an optical illusion board where, you know, you look and you don't see anything. And then you, and then if your eyes kind of relax and focus, you see a schooner. Yeah. Right. Or yeah, a yeah. sailboat right, right, right from mall rats. Right. Um, <laughs> so the test was uh, if you see an egg in this image you would push a button and if you didn't see it, you would push another button. And there was, it was timed. It was like three seconds. Right. And that stupid egg made me so anxious. Like I, I had to go, I had to, I couldn't go to class the rest of the day. I was like, I'm so like, I am, I'm at like a nine, right. I was so anxious leaving this stupid test. And I remember going home and my, my fiance at the time. Now my wife was like, what's the matter? And I was like, the stupid eggs. And I, you know, I explained it to her and she was like, well, I mean, I don't know what that's about, but <laughs> you know, and, uh, oh man, it was, I, you know, I, I, I'm sure now it was a mix of like the, you know, the anxiety of not being able to see it and what it being able to see it mean. And, you know, just all of it was like a perfect crescendo. Right. But man, I will never forget those, those damn eggs. Anyways. Um, so, so I guess one, one question I have is, so they're, they're discussing in many cases, this, this, um, this idea of dissociative identity disorder. Sure. And a, a, along with that, they they almost create a very complicated I, I mythos, I guess, for a lack of a better word, like a almost a, a universe around themselves, right? Where there's these members of the cult that exist in the shadows of their town, and you know all, all this. It's it, it, in some cases it gets very detailed. At least it seems like on the internet when you read these stories. Yeah. Um, 
first off, I, you know, is what is the clinical reality or I guess significance, the level of dissociative identity disorder? What even is it supposed to be? Um, if, if you have that kind of, you know, um, if, if you feel comfortable having that kind of discussion and then on top of that too, you know, how common is it to create that kind of mythos or that, you know, that self image of, um, I mean, it just seems very complicated. It seems so convoluted and, and, uh, you know, it seems like that it takes so much energy to create this mythos. It's hard to see, you know, like why, why do it? Right. So, Again, another tremendously loaded question for you, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, ha- yeah. Well, let me, so let, let me talk kind of about the, the mythos first part, part, part first, and then I'll come to the, uh, the dissociative identity part. Sure. So, uh, so humans are very naturally storytellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of the reasons why just presenting data to people often doesn't work unless you're, you know, a mutant sort of scientist like us, for example, right? <laughs> um, instead, stories stick with people much more. They have much more impact uh, because that's what we do. Like, we naturally try and make sense of the world around us. You know, our brains are storytelling machines. Um, so whenever anything occurs around me, I try and make sense of it, right? And I try and put it in some sort of context where I can better understand what's going on. And this, you know, goes from, you know, more small scale events like, okay, well, why hasn't she texted me back? You know, to larger scale things like, why am I experiencing the severe health problems that I'm experiencing? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when people are, having mental health difficulties, you know, whatever that is, uh, almost inevitably they have some sort of uh, unique to them explanation of why they think this is occurring. You know, what is it that is happening around me that's causing me to experience X or Y? So if, for example, I'm experiencing huge amounts of uh, anxiety in some way, most people come up with some sort of explanation for that. And that could be, you know, oh, it's because, you know, I was treated this way when I was a child, or it could be, you know, because this or that's going on around me in terms of my environment right now. But we all make those stories up. Uh, and if I'm experiencing, you know, let's say, um, false memories or what someone else would call false memories about uh, ritualistic abuse or things like that. What I'll often try and do is I'll try and come up with stories that help me then avoid further things that might make that worse. And so, and this is no different from what, you know, all of our ancestors did in terms of trying to control their environment being, you know, prone to, uh, let's say, sacrificing mm. a goat in order to, you know, help ensure that X or Y happens or performing some sort of a ritual to help curry the favor of this or that particular deity. But it's, it's just more of an iatrogenic uh, individual level, right? So if I know to avoid that person and that person, and I know that these people are all involved in this, then I can warn other people and we can all together avoid 
this from happening to us again or from happening to my children or things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I'm, and again, all of us do that in various ways. It's just that most of us don't end up with these ridiculously complicated, complicated sort of mythoses, right? So these stories about what's going on. Uh, but if I have, for example, thinking that I am or have been part of this sort of satanic cult and abused as a child, it turns out it's really easy to find information to confirm that. Mm-hmm. Just like with any belief that we have, it's much easier to confirm them than it is to disconfirm them, which is obviously why science works the way that it does, right? right. Um, but I can look for other people on the internet, and I can just go type in satanic abuse, right? Mm-hmm. Or signs of satanic abuse, and I can come up with probably hundreds to thousands of websites in um, 30 seconds. They're all going to reinforce that this is exactly what happened right. to me. Uh, and then I can find all these books written by supposed experts that do the exact same thing. Um, and I mean, this is not a, um, a new thing in terms of, you know, people being able to find confirmation for the beliefs, however wild and wacky they might be, but it's a hell of a lot easier now thanks to the internet. Mm. Because as your listeners may or may not be aware People can lie on the internet. <laughs> they know uh, they, you know they they know that, but they know that no one lies on a podcast, and it's very that's important, true. listeners. That, buy that our crystals. True. Buy yes, our crystals. That is very true. What? So I, I so before even I'm 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 putting even more questions to you before you can answer the second part of the first question. What do, do you think then that these people have? Because okay, we do you think that these people have actually had or experienced? Uh, real trauma, and I, I guess, but I guess, like you said, that doesn't really matter, right? It's, it's their brain's perception, or it's their brain's feeling of trauma. I guess I just wonder, you know, could this be one common, one common, um, I guess, kind of refrain you hear with this stuff, right? It's the same with alien abduction stories too, and everything else. Is that these are people covering up with their, you know, with this larger mythos, them actually being abused, right? Or, um, or something traumatic or something that they're ashamed of or whatever occurring, you know, in their lives and their childhoods or whatever. Um, but does it even take some, first off, what do you think about those explanations? But secondly, would it even take a real event to happen? Could it, could it all be in someone's, I guess, head, even if they feel the trauma is real? Yeah, very good question. And, th- and this actually relates back to um, one of your earlier questions about dissociative identity disorder. Mm. So the, the majority of people who have these kinds of memories about being satanically abused, um, most of those memories were elicited or quote-unquote recovered during things like hypnotic regression. I was actually, that or, was my next question for you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Uh, no, I'm just anticipating. Telling psychic you. powers. Yeah, no, uh, we've just proved it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I mean, honestly, that's what happens. You know, most people, uh, maybe they're feeling upset or depressed or anxious and they don't really understand why and they happen to go to a therapist who is one of these we don't we don't see as many now thankfully uh, but particularly in the 80s we had all these therapists who were 
doing these quote-unquote recovered memory techniques, right? Where, yeah. well, let's get to what really happened. Um, and so they would, you know, put people under quote-unquote hypnosis and then regress them to, you know, whatever ages they wanted to regress, quote-unquote, them to. Uh, and then one of the things that a lot of people misunderstand about hypnosis is that, oh, well, if I'm hypnotized, I can't lie. Mm. Well, it turns out, no, hypnosis is basically just a relaxive, suggestible sort of state. Uh, but if I think that I can't lie during hypnosis, then it turns out that I just start talking. And if I and then in the presence of someone who's asking very particularly leading questions, which most of these people did, mm -hmm. then what happens is you start implanting false memories. And there doesn't have to be any sort of truth to that in the first place. And we know this from um, very, very strong decades worth of experimental psychology research is that I can implant a false memory in someone pretty easily, even if there's no grain of truth. It's much easier if it's similar to something that could have happened. But I can still do it, even though there's not uh, anything there to kind of hang my hat on, as it were, in terms of building extra memory on top of. And so when you've got, you know, I would say these very unethical therapists who are doing this sort of thing, uh, then what happens is you then start, quote-unquote, recalling your memories. And one of the things that most people don't understand about memory is that memory is not recollective, it's reconstructive. Um, so if I, you know, if I ask you, Chris, I say, well, what did you have for breakfast last Tuesday? There's a really good chance that unless it was some sort of unique phenomenon last Tuesday that you, you know, had it during breakfast, that you're not actually recalling it as much as you are just reconstructing it. Mm. So what, what do I typically have? Where do I typically eat? You know, what am I doing this? And you mm. just kind of build that memory each time, even for things that we really, you know, strongly feel is, uh, you know, a highly accurate memory. We still do the same thing in terms of reconstructing it rather than just recollecting it. And so if I'm, you know, with one of these therapists that is helping to, you know, at least plant some seeds of false memories and asking me leading questions and I feel like I can't lie because I'm under hypnosis and I feel a strong pressure to respond in a particular way, then all of a sudden I start building these false memories very, very quickly about, I remember dad took me and my sister down into the basement and, you know, he murdered her and he buried her underneath the, you know, the back corner and that's where her bones are. And, and there's no record of you ever having a sister, right? And mm -hmm. you go dig that up and there's nothing there. And then, well, I, uh, I'm either making all of this up or I start building onto that mythos, right, of, well, they're controlling the police, and they're controlling the records of X or Y. And you, and, and you would never, you would never think that you were the one making it up, right? You would. No. It's not a. No, I don't. I, yeah, I don't yeah. think that's a very common. I can't imagine that being a very common feeling for someone. No, no I mean, not for anyone in general. Like, think about you know just your your own self. Like, how often do you like admitting that you're wrong? Uh, my guess is probably not very often because most of us don't like to do that. Right, right sure. 
Sure. Now, how likely would you be to easily admit that you're wrong about something that's become such a huge part of who you are? Man, yeah, that's, that's so interesting. It's less likely. Yeah. So this sort of, you know, regression techniques and things like that, all of which are completely non-scientific and are actually based on these pseudoscientific ideas of things like repressed memories, which is not a real thing. Uh, we forget. We don't repress. Uh, hmm. But these, you know, these sort of... Um, cycles form over and over and over again, right? Whether it's the panic about witches in Salem or whether it's the, you know, panic about satanic cults or whether, you know, it's the panic about terrorists next door or, you know, whatever it is. Um, we see these things happen over and over again. And if you've got vulnerable people who are not... Uh, being treated well in terms of their mental health care and instead are being treated by folks who are using these dubious techniques and that just sets a breeding ground up for people uh, developing these false memories and then you know responding to them as if they were real sure it's you know it's so interesting I mean I, I think it's that you you mentioned the cycles right this idea that these things kind of keep coming and that's that's one thing that we try to really uh, harp on a lot on the show is you know the main the the main way that you can tell a pseudoscientific belief from a scientific one is the pseudoscientific belief never changes it just comes back in a new you know a new form right so you know uh, the idea of witches uh, you know originally was the idea of of uh, you know, the Furies or whatever, and then it became witches and then it became, you know, uh, aliens and now it's Illuminati agents. And, you know, I mean, right, right. the idea of someone coming at the night, stealing you from your bed and then doing terrible things to you has been around since, you know, the beginning of time, right, as far as we can tell. So, you know, um, in the face of evidence, it just it just kind of morphs, it doesn't it doesn't actually go away. The. You know, so I guess as a last as a last question here, you know, one thing that I always struggle with and I because I, you know, as a as the host of this show and as someone who's interested in this stuff, I spend a lot of time on Facebook groups. I don't really I don't interact or anything, but I spend a lot of time on these Facebook groups kind of lurking um, and, you know, seeing people who are there's there's one group that I'm part of. At, that's called uh, Pleiadians and reptilians and whatever, right? And these people are convinced that they are alien star seeds. And so for anyone that doesn't know, a star seed is a person who has been uh, either soul implanted or they have been literally in, you know uh, put here by aliens in some way, right? So their mother was impregnated by an alien or whatever. And uh, there are there's this one girl in particular, this one woman in particular, I should say, who I've, I've wanted to contact, but I always hesitate because I don't think it would be fair to her. You know, it wouldn't even be on the podcast because I don't think it would be fair to have her on the podcast for her own. I don't think it'd be fair to her. Right. But I'm always fascinated in talking to her and just understanding her worldview because she goes on, she does Facebook live things where she talks about how 
you know, oh, my aura is really low today. The aliens are telling me this and this, and the world is coming to a close, you know, a close, and we need to bring our energy back and whatever. And the comments, you know, hundreds of these comments, you know, are all positive. Are all like, yeah, you're right. You know, my aura has been feeling it too today. And, you know, the dolphin told me this and, you know, whatever. Right. And in some ways it's like, it's, in some ways it seems comical because it's a very like Lisa Frank view of the universe, right? right. You have these uh, rainbows and, you know, happy aliens and, and love and whatever. But on the other hand, it's very, it's, it's depressing to, to see that almost because, you know that this is just delusion. This is, you know what I mean? And they're all just reinforcing each other. Um, and I, I just, I have such a hard time understanding, or I guess I, I wonder as a psychologist, as someone who kind of deals with this stuff on a daily basis, how would you suggest a, a listener or someone or whatever, if a friend comes to you and says that they've had these experiences or they believe in this stuff or whatever, how do you deal with it? First off, you know, empathetically, like how do you treat these people with uh, respect and uh, dignity and, and kindness, but also, I mean, what do you suggest? I don't know. I don't know. How do you, do, how yeah, do you, how do you sure. as, a, as a person deal with that? Like, what do you do? Right. Yeah. So you know, the, the first thing, this is actually something I stress in my classes um, is an idea that, goes back to uh, Barack Spinoza, the philosopher from you know, a small amount of time ago, sure. which is that you know, I, I try my best to understand why someone believes what it is they believe, as opposed to just kind of ridiculing them for that belief. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so being able to you know, understand like what are the typical you know cognitive mechanisms that that cause all of us to develop and then maintain and reinforce beliefs uh, which which it doesn't matter what belief it is it could be the belief that you know my parents love me or the belief that I'm a star seed or the belief that you know podcasts are worthy use of our time or whatever it is right whatever that belief is they're all being maintained through the same kind of mechanisms. Um, and those are, you know, cognitive, but also social, right? So, so this, this gal that you were talking about, I mean, she's obviously getting huge amounts of reinforcement and confirmation of her beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. So, of course, she's going to keep going back to those same people to get more of that, right? Mm-hmm. Just like if I have a particular religious belief, um, where do I go on Sunday morning? Well, I go to that church that shares my religious belief. I don't go to a different one, right? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. be like, let's try this out. Um, So I think that's the first thing that is important to do, and that that really helps with your being empathic and, and understanding, which is that this person has a different belief than I do about this. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily stupid just because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, they're they're having their beliefs for the same reason I'm having mine. It's just that we have different beliefs. So related to that is then, you know, understanding specifically why they have this belief, right? Like in general, I know this is why beliefs form. 
but why is this person? So having them actually explain, you know, what evidence they have that has caused them to believe that they're a star seeker, that ghosts are real, or that they were ritualistically abused, or mm-hmm. whatever it happens to be, and listening to that, um, and not just immediately starting to argue with it or anything, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so just listening, and then helping them you know, let you let, helping them understand that you heard them by giving that back to them. Right. So here's, here's the information that you just gave me. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me show you that I actually did pay attention. that I was listening. Uh, and you state it back to them so that they say, you know, yeah, like here's, yeah, you're right. You did hear me. You do understand why I believe this mm-hmm. because if, Someone that I'm interacting with doesn't right up front know that I'm hearing them. You know, if I'm just waiting my turn to talk, right, mm-hmm. instead of instead of actually hearing them, then they're just going to shut down, and you're not going to be able to open up that conversation again. Sure. And it's just going to be, oh no, we're done. Um, so instead, you know, letting them know I'm hearing you, I'm understanding you, and then. The best part, or the best thing to do at that point, is really to say, "Okay, well, here's something we agree on." Uh, and I'll give you, I'll give you kind of a, you know, a non-supernatural example, which is that I frequently interact with anti-vaxxers, um, who, you know, all the scientific evidence is obviously very against, and it's very dangerous not to vaccinate your children if at all possible. Um, and so I'll listen to them and I'll, I'll say, here's, you know, here's what you told me. Here's why you have this belief. And then I'll list a point of agreement that we have, which is that we want our children to be healthy and safe. Sure. And so they know that I'm on the same page with them as that, right? Uh, and then I'll mention, okay, here's, here's something I learned from you today that I didn't, I didn't know. I've never heard this before. Or I've never encountered this piece of information before, which is further reinforces, right? Like, mm-hmm. hey, uh, I'm hearing you. I'm listening to you. And it's only at that point, right, where they, they know that I've listened to them. They know that and feel that they've been heard. and say, here's where we agree that I'll do any sort of rebuttal or criticism or anything like that. Okay. Uh, in general, this is what we call Rappaport's rules. Uh, Anatole Rappaport was a social psychologist um, who, who studied basically like how do I get other people to listen to me when we disagree. Uh, and it's only then, you know, they've been heard. We, I say, here's where we agree. Here's what I've learned from you that I can then say, but have you thought about this? You know, or, you know, have you been exposed to this? And I, you know, I've got a relatively unique skill set in that, and that I'm a clinical psychologist, and it turns out that's what I do mm-hmm. a lot, which is help people examine their own beliefs and behaviors. So I've got kind of a leg up on people, um, you know, compared to the average person, because that's what I've been trained in and doing for, you know, close to two decades at this point. Right. And I'll do a large amount of more... Socratic style questioning. Mm-hmm. You know, again, I'm not telling them that they're wrong, but I'm helping 
ask questions to lead them to examine their own beliefs a little more carefully. Mm-hmm. And to me, I think that's the, you know, that's the really critical point is, you know, helping other people examine their beliefs mm-hmm. uh, because that's what we have to do, right? I can't just tell you you're wrong. You have to come to those conclusions yourself. So that, yeah, I, I, I think that's really interesting. It's funny. It's, it's kind of, it kind of, I mean, definitely it it matches similar to what I have found to be the most useful way actually to argue with people who are, um, I found it easier with more with, with, I guess, more cut and dry things, right? So for instance, when someone tells me that they don't believe in climate change, right? I, I, I always go into, well, why, right? Like what part of the theory of, of greenhouse gas adsorption of, you know, light do you not agree with, right? Is it that CO2's molecular bonds aren't actually excited by this, inf- you know, uh, you know, try to get into really the nitty gritty of it and try to pick apart, like, you know, until finally they they sort of realize like, oh, well, you know, actually I don't know that much about this, right? <laughs> or, or, you know, uh, or, you know, um, oh, I never, I never knew there was so much of our science based on this idea, right? And all of it works. So why am I disbelieving this one bit or whatever? Um, but the part, I guess, that I – so that's – I think, though, the part of, of listening and hearing them and whatever is really important. I mean, it's something that the – you know, again, I think a lot of us don't like to necessarily call ourselves skeptics just because it's been uh, hit with that kind of brush of debunker, right, of, sure, of kind of, sure. a, of a very uh, strong, you know, oh, you're wrong and you're stupid for thinking and whatever, you know um, – but actually hearing these people, I mean, I, I always tell whenever my colleagues or whoever ask me, you know, well, why do you even waste your time with this podcast? Like, why, why do you care about these topics? You know, it's, it's because there's real people at the other end who really think this stuff is, is true, right? And so even if you don't think the story itself is true or the event happened, first off, it's worth talking to them about it because, you know, what happened to them? How do they believe this stuff? But at the same time, too, I think it's just it tells us so much about our own our own minds, about humanity in general, that it's worth looking at. Um, but the part, I guess, as a as a final thing here, the part that I always struggle with is. You know, as when do you suggest that someone seek mental help, I guess, or or, or a mental health diagnosis or, or you know, at, is that even the place of someone in the public to do? Yeah, I mean, first thing I would say is that just because someone holds a, you know, a belief that is false or inaccurate certainly in no way implies they have, you know, some sort of mental health problem. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, 100%. Yeah. And, you know, most of us hold beliefs in one way or another that are not necessarily accurate, right? Yeah, I think the Rangers uh, are going to win the Stanley Cup. No. <laughs> It's not going to happen. <laughs> but boy, I'd like for it. To right. Be true, love it. Right? It's not going to yeah. happen though. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think, I think the big, the big thing to do and to think about in terms of, you know, either for myself or for uh, a friend or a family member is, you know, is there functioning in terms of social functioning, emotional functioning, is it being negatively impacted mm. by having these beliefs, mm-hmm. right? And that 
could be true, right? Or it could be that this belief is useful to them in some sort of way. Um, you know, so this, you know, this lady who thinks she's a star seed and, you know, looks at her auras and whatnot, like maybe that works for her. You know, maybe that's, um, helping her out in her life in some sort of way that it's a very useful belief, right? Sure. Um, so for me, it's always about looking at, you know, is this actually harmful to the individual? Okay. And would it be more harmful to uh, remove said belief? Okay, so it's more like, you know, if if your friend is into conspiracy theories and thinks the moon landing was fake and whatever, don't, you know, whatever. Just a, it's just a false belief, right? You can have discussions, it's fine, right? But if uh, if your friend gets fired from his job because he's claiming his boss is a uh, satanic agent or something, then maybe it's time to, you know, have that yeah. right discussion. That makes yeah, perfect like, sense. Are there, are there negative um, consequences as a result of this belief for that belief. So, you know, as a more mundane example, um, you know, one of my specialties is obsessive compulsive disorder. Sure. You know, it turns out there's a fairly good chunk of the population who has like one or two things that you might consider an obsession or a compulsion. But is it, you know, I have to turn the radio up by twos or is it, you know, I have to, you know, double tap the, the doorknob when I go by and it's not really impacting my life negatively, then okay, well then just go on about your business, right? Mm. But if it's, you know, like someone I saw last week who was taking an hour and a half to be able to get into bed because they had this extensive routine, like, yeah, that's that's problematic because they're not getting enough sleep and they're, right. you know, they're really disturbed by it. Let's, let's work on that. Absolutely. So I think it's that issue of, you know, impacting my functioning and impacting my quality of life. Not that certainly things like conspiracy beliefs and whatnot um, can't do that because they most certainly can. Um, but you know, is it is it an impactful belief, right? Right. No, that makes perfect sense. Well, you know, thank again. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. This has really been, I think, one of my favorite episodes ever. Uh, this has been so so fascinating. Um, you know, anytime you want to come on and talk about anything, please let us know. We'd love to have you come back. Okay, great. Where Thanks, can uh, where can listeners find you? Find more of your uh, your work. You know, in critical thinking and whatever and whatever they're interested in. Uh, so I've got a pretty extensive website at sure. calebblack dot com, uh, and from there you can find links to things like uh, my YouTube page or Facebook page. Uh, I'm on. Twitter, but I'm not very active on there. I'm much more active on Facebook. Um, so if you guys, you know, can find me on there, that's fine. Um, and you can, you know, sort of find uh, links to my books or my research articles and things like that on my website as well. Perfect. And we will uh, we'll have links to a bunch of stuff in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Dr. Caleb Black, thank you again so much for coming on. It was a pleasure. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. Okay, well, that's the end of the episode. Oh, man, thank you. It's seriously, this was fascinating. Oh, thanks. I mean, that's why I'm in this field, because it's fascinating to me. You know, it's so so funny. um, So I did my, my, um, my undergraduate studies were philosophy and chemical engineering. Mm -hmm. And like, 
I now I find though, like every day when I'm, you know, I'm designing a stupid um a heat exchanger or something or whatever. I'm like, man, I really should have done that philosophy psychology thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, this was a, this was a mistake, but, uh, but know. no, I, 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 I love it. It's so good. Yeah. That's, that's so fascinating, man. Um, good stuff. Good stuff. All right. All right, man. Have a good day. All right. Thanks. Take yeah. care. Bye. Thank you again, dear listeners for listening to the mad scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell joined by my co-host Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at the mad scientist podcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at mad scientist pod or at team giant squid for Marie. And of course you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes. And luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes.